Everybody open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 11. This is the Sunday where we discuss the Tower of Babel. And I'm really excited about it. All right. Okay, I'm going to read. Uh, we're just doing the first nine verses. There's plenty in there. We're going to leave the uh, genealogy afterwards for Johnny next week. Yep. And uh, <laughs> there was a whole thing on that this morning. He's like, there's a lot of names. Yep. He, he gets Peleg. He's got to work through that one. Okay. Tower, Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there confuse and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, you son of the living God, have mercy on us, Lord Jesus. We are sinners. But Lord, it is the testimony of your power that through such as us, you can express your spirit, you can express your will, you can express your word, you can express your kingdom. And so Holy Spirit, we present ourselves not as worthy in and of ourselves, but as willing vessels for your work today, your word. We present ourselves as desiring you, desiring you because of who you are and needing you because of who we are. So have mercy on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you, all you lovely people. Um, good morning to those of you who are online or who are watching this in the future. I do want to encourage those of you online. We, we, um, we work to try and make a, a, a good experience for those who can't be here. But if you can be here, then please be here because we miss you and we miss having you here, and, we, and it's wonderful to have people here presently. 
Um, but I recognize, of course, there are many reasons why we can't, and we rejoice that those of you who are in other places or facing life conditions that make it so that it's difficult for you to be here, we're really glad you could join us at least online. I think there's, um, there's a, a lying spirit in the church that wants people to not be here, to not engage, to stay distant, checked out, pulled back, critical, um, angry, fault-finding. And you, you can't do that. If you, if you want to be upset with me, if you want to be upset with the church, if you want to be upset with anybody in this room, there are plenty of reasons, plenty of reasons. But I don't think that's what Christ has called us to. I think Christ has called us to unity, to grace towards each other, to love for each other, to patience and long-suffering along with each other, and we need each other. I don't know about you, I've got stuff in my life that is hard on my own, and it's a, a tremendous blessing to sit with um, brothers and sisters in the church and be encouraged and, um, and to pray. Don't overlook prayer. This is a, this is a, a time of refining and sifting of the church, not just this church, all the church, but including this church very much. So by God's grace, we can rise to that, but sifting doesn't feel good and refining doesn't feel good, does it? I think almost everybody here could raise their hand and say, yeah, something's going on. So in that, we'll continue to stick tight to scripture. We're gonna look for the gospel and the truth in scripture always, and it's here today. Let's talk about the Tower of Babel. This is one of the oldest and most confusing stories in scripture. It's a really, really strange passage. Uh, Dan uh, Rundio was texting me last night saying, how's it coming? Because he knew it was about 10.30 p.m. and I should probably be you know, starting to collect some thoughts on what I'm gonna be saying in the next 11 hours. <laughs> and um, he said, how's it coming? And I said, this passage is bizarre. There is, there is so much in here that are words that are used one time in the Bible, translated like this only here, um, weird allusions in the rest of Scripture that sort of reach back to this event, but you can't figure out why they're placing it where they are. And then when we get other explanations in Scripture about this event, then they're strange. They're really strange. But it's a beautiful, beautiful passage because the more I've studied it, the more this story, not the story just in and of itself, but how it's told really encapsulates the entire story of Scripture. And that was not lost on the biblical writers, and it certainly wasn't lost on the Holy Spirit as he inspired those writers because it's a consistency through Scripture all the way to the very, very end. So let's, let's get into it. Babel. Words only, only here. Babel. Babel is actually Babylon. Babylon is a city name, which roughly translates to the gate of the gods, something like that. But here in this, and, and Babylon is called Babylon all through the rest of Scripture. But here and only here, 
It's Babel. It shows up in the previous chapter. If you, uh, are, if you recall, the descendants, the nations descended from Noah. And when Brian explained this in uh, chapter 10, verse 8, it says, Cush fathered Nimrod. And he was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. It's always something when something's repeated like that. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erek, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So he's the guy who built not just one major civilization and city, but multiple civilizations and cities in one region that is today present-day Iraq. And I went um, thoroughly down the rabbit hole of what each of those cities are and where they are. Some of them, we still know exactly where they are. Uh, Babylon, of course, is a major, major city. Nineveh is in there. Um, there's, a, there's a lot. But, the, but then there's the, these weird mysteries around it, like Nimrod, who is he? What does his name mean? We use it like an insult sometimes, but I've, I read academic papers on what is it, where does this name come from? It doesn't translate in Hebrew. And the answer is nobody's sure. Um, there's a, there was an ancient name for one of the cities and for the region of Murad, and Nin means king. It could mean king of Murad, Nin Murad. Um, that makes sense. It may not be correct, but it's not important. So this guy establishes this city, and it says specifically that they're coming from the east. Well, what, where were they coming from? Why were they east of Shinar? Well, what happened right before this? They got off the ark. Now, what's funny about that is we're told, well, the ark landed in the mountains of Ararat, which are north of Shinar. So we think, but it could be, and I think, that the, what they refer to in the mountains of Ararat, you know, four plus thousand years ago, may not be exactly what we're calling the mountains of Ararat. I think the mountains of Ararat are to the east of Shinar, the mountains of, in Iran. And if we ever find the ark, which we probably won't find them north of Shinar, which is where they keep looking, if we ever find the ark, and, and, I, and there are some people who believe, and I haven't studied this deeply, who believe that the finding of the ark will be an important element in drawing people to the Lord at the end times. I don't know. But if we do find it, I think we'll find it east of Shinar because it says they're coming from the east. That's just an aside there. People migrated from the east. They found a plain there in Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks. Now, there's not a lot of times in Scripture where that, that little phrase, come, let us, is there. It's over and over and over in this passage. Three times, the people say, come, let us, come, let us, come, let us, or let us make. One time, God says, come, let us. So the people say, let us make, let us build. What are they building? They're making bricks. They're building a city and a tower. Why? Because they're making, as they say, a name for themselves. They're making a name for themselves, lest we be dispersed. It's another word. It's a weird word. That word shows up here three times. Not so much in other places, and I'll talk about where they are. Because sometimes you can find a trail of breadcrumbs through Scripture where you get a, weird, a, a word or a phrase that's kind of anomalous, that's repeated, repeated here, and then referenced here, and you all of a sudden you go, 
oh, there's a reason he's repeating that in a different book, in a different passage, because it calls it back to this event. So the people are saying, let us make, let us build, let us make bricks, let us build a city, let us build a tower. Well, what kind of tower? A tower that, depending on how your, uh, your translation has it, says, with its top in the heavens. Or you've heard in the Sunday school version, a tower to heaven. These people didn't actually think that they were going to build something that extended beyond the atmosphere. You have to, and we've alluded to some of this, the concept of the heavens is a very important concept at the time. In fact, if, and it's a very important concept all through Scripture. I would challenge you to go through the Old Testament and try and find a passage on the heavens where they're not alive. The heavens are frequently alive and active in Scripture. So when they're talking about the heavens, they're not talking just about what we think of. They didn't have the same concept of the solar system that we have. Although they did have an extremely accurate concept of the solar system, as we find from ancient Sumerian and Akkadian writing, they list the planets in order, in sizes. So chew on that. Um, we're not going too much today, but what I do want you to know is that the, the heavens, when they're saying, let us make for ourselves a tower with its top in the heavens, or a more accurate translation could be with the heavens in its top, they're talking about a divine interaction that they want. Well, what do they believe? Well, we know what the Babylonians believe. We know what the ancient mindset was, what the ancient Babylonians thought. They worshiped the heavens. They worshiped deities in the heavens. The primary god of Babylon was a god named Marduk. Marduk is associated with the planet Jupiter. They also later shows up on the scene a planet named uh, Nergal, which is Mars. They worshiped Marduk and Nergal. And these were not pleasant beings most of the time. Let me grab right here. This is if you want to go down a rabbit hole, uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky, Worlds in Collision. This guy wrote this book in the 50s and was before they had been to Mars or Venus, and he was dead on because he spent a lot of time in the very ancient manuscripts. But this is just his description of Nergal. Historical inscriptions of the 8th century speak of the opposition of the star Mars, Nergal. These, together with conjunctions, were carefully watched. The movement of Mars was extremely important in Babylonian astrology. It's rising, it's setting, it's disappearing, it's return, whatever that means. Its position in relation to the equator, its change in illuminating power, its relation to Venus, Jupiter, and Mercury. Even in India, the various phrases of retrograde motion of the planets, and especially Mars, were objects of great attention. People were addressed in their, prayers were addressed in Ergal with the lifting of hands toward the star Mars. Quote, thou who walkest in the sky with splendor and terror, king of battle, the raging fire god, Nergal. Nergal, Mars, was called by the Babylonians the fire star. Nergal, the fire star, comes like a raging storm. He's called the burner and the light of flames from heaven and the lord of destruction. Mars was generally regarded by other people, too, as fire star, and he lists, uh, including Chinese astronomical charts, uh, Sennacherib, uh, quotes, in the month of Abu, the month of the descent of the fire star. 
But we ask for a direct statement that the planet Mars near Gaul was the immediate cause of cataclysms in the 8th and 7th centuries when the world, in the language of Isaiah, was, quote, moved exceedingly and became removed from its place. This very action is ascribed to the planet Mars near Gaul. The heaven he makes dark, he moves the earth off its hinges, and again, Nergal on high stills the heaven and causes the earth to shudder. Is that weird? Why is the whole ancient world talking about destructive heavens? Why are they worshiping heavenly bodies, and why are they scared to death of them? The short answer is we don't really know. We don't know, but we do know that all the ancient civilizations had this in common. They were scared of Mars, they were scared of Venus at different times, and they associated them with tremendous upheaval and destruction. So, there's two ways you can go with that. One is, wow, what a bunch of strange, superstitious people. How sorry we should feel for them, because who needs to be afraid of you know, a rock that's millions of miles away? That's one, and that's generally our thought process as we think about ancient peoples, because we've had drilled into our heads since grade school that there's an ascent of man and that the new man is always better, wiser, more intelligent, and better adjusted than the old, and that we're constantly evolving beyond our old problems, and good thing we got past all those old silly superstitions. That's one way. It's just not what the Bible presents. What I have come to respect as I've studied a lot of these ancient documents and people like Velikovsky who've studied them far more in depth than I have, is they were on to something and whatever they were dealing with is just something that we can be grateful we're not directly dealing with. Because they literally worshiped the heavens because they were scared because they accredited tremendous catastrophe, tremendous earth shattering upheaval, destruction, destroyers of people, global fires, global floods, they blamed the heavens. And when they describe what these heavens looked like, there are ancient writings that talk about Venus rivaling the brightness of the sun. I mean, Venus is bright, but not that bright. It's a point of light in the West. So all that to say, the heavens were really important, and I don't think it's because they were a bunch of fools. I think it's because the world was different then, for whatever reason. And if we want, we're not going to do this, but uh, if you want to go down that rabbit hole sometime, then um, it's, it's really interesting because you can get agreeing accounts from the Native Americans to the Mayans to the Nordic peoples to the Aborigine peoples to, the, to China to India to the Middle East, and they'll all tell the same story at the same time of the same types of cataclysms happening, and they'll all blame the same star. So who knows? Who knows? But they worshipped the heavens. They said, let us build. Let us make bricks. Let us build a city. Let us build a tower with the heavens in its top or with its top in the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the land. Why is it problematic that they don't want to be dispersed over the land? Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 9, the moment the people got off the ark, in, the, in his blessing of them, the first part of the blessing God gave, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
And now they're migrating away from there, coming to this place and saying, we don't want to fill the earth. By the way, we're not really interested in the blessing of Yahweh. We're going to get something going with these heavenly bodies, these heavenly beings, which are directly associated with the, um, the Genesis chapter 6 passages that we've studied. We're returning to that relationship, and we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to become something great. And God doesn't disagree with them. He comes down, and, the, and it says, the Lord came down to see. There are two times in all of Scripture where it says, God comes down to see a city. This is one. The next one, just flip a couple pages to the right. Genesis chapter 18, verse 20. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. We don't really think of God that way, of God saying, I've been hearing about this, I'm going to go see it for myself. In our minds, it doesn't even kind of compute with our concept of God, but it happens in Scripture. We, kind of, we tend to project our concept of how we think we interact with God without really appreciating that there were very, very, very direct interactions with God in the Old Testament. For example, if you go look at the offerings of Cain and Abel, it says they brought it to the Lord. It doesn't say they built an altar and burnt an offering. It says Abel brought some of his flock and brought it to the Lord. And Cain brought some of his uh, crops and brought it to the Lord, and they had a conversation about it. What exactly does that look like? I don't know. That's just what it says. The first time we see it, the burnt offering, the altar, is in the, in the story of Noah after the flood. So the Lord comes down to see, and what does he see? He sees, in verse 6, behold, they are one people and they have one language. Now, here's another weird one, that word language. It's the first time it's here. But those of you who are shrewd are going to look up and say, uh-uh, look at 10, chapter 10, verse 20. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and their languages. Totally different word. Totally different word. This word, when it says language in the story of Tower and Babel, is a unique word for language. It's hardly ever used in Scripture. And what it means is... Language, lips, border, culture, division. That's what it means. One of the only other times it's used is when Moses is talking with uh, Yahweh in the burning bush. God says, go talk to Pharaoh. And Moses says, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. I don't speak the right language. Did Moses not know the language of Pharaoh? Well, of course he did. He grew up in the palace. But he's saying... Pharaoh's not going to listen to me. I'm not the right kind of person. So Roses is recognizing a division, and he uses this word that is unique. So if you think about other places in Scripture, like Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands day after day, they pour forth speech night after night, they display knowledge, there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Totally different words. None of them are the same as this word for language. And that means, the word there means tongue, speech, language, words. But God says, 
they're one language, and they have the same words. So yes, spoken language is a part of this, but it's more than that. He's saying all these people are of the same mind, and that word language is used so specifically here, talks about judgment between each other. They're all judging the same way. Nothing is dividing them. They are a united people. And so after the people have said, come let us make bricks, come let us build a city, come let us build a tower, come let us make a name for ourselves, then it's Yahweh's turn to say, come let us. And what he says is, come let us confuse them. It's a strange solution. The, and the word confuse is the word balal, which sounds a lot like babel. And that's the only explanation why they can say Babylon is called Babel here is it's a play on words because this is the story of confusion. It's confusion. It's bewilderment. It's people all simultaneously going, what is going on? And so he, he uses that, that plural phrasing that we've spent so much time on, and he says, let us go down, therefore, and confuse their language so that they may not understand each other's speech. So he divides the people. And it says, so the Lord dispersed. This gets repeated too. That's another strange word, dispersed. He disperses them. He disperses them over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Then what do we get? We get a genealogy, and then this guy named Abram. This is, this is the story of the history of what God is doing with humanity. But first there's this flood, and then the people are united, and he says, no, you can't be like that. And to us in this vacuum, it's confusing this is a story of confusion, and we're going, what, what's, what's happening here? Well, fortunately, we're, it's explained to us, and it's explained to us by Moses. So turn to your right to the book of Deuteronomy. First, we're going to talk about, so Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, what he does is he runs back through the history of the people of Israel to time and memoriam, all the way back to the beginning, and says, here's where you came from. First, start with me in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19. And he's talking to the Israelites. And beware, this is a warning, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord has allotted to all the peoples. So this is what Moses is saying to them. He's saying, don't look too closely to these gods in the heavens because you'll start worshiping them. And they're not for you. They're for other people. And that's flies absolutely in the face of everything we know from postmodern American Western evangelical Christianity. What? Gods? Other people? 
allotted? What is this? What's going on? And I know we've talked about this some, but I'm trying to bring it full circle for you. That's what he says here. He says, be careful. If you start looking here, you're going to start worshiping these gods, and those are not your gods. Those are not for you. Then you skip down. It says, if you do this, verse 26, I will, it says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon do this. You'll perish from the land, and the Lord will scatter, and that word is that strange word, disperse you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. He's saying, as soon as you turn from me and to these gods of heaven, the same gods that Babel tried to build a tower to, and I dispersed them, as soon as you turn towards them, I'm going to disperse you. And I'm going to disperse you among those nations. So there's that. Keep, stay in Deuteronomy, flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Look around verse 26. First, there's a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 23. We'll save that for when we get there. Verse 24, all the nations will say, why has the Lord done this to his people? The people will say, verse 25, it's because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, he made with them when he brought them out of Egypt, verse 26, and he went and they went and they served other gods and worshiped them, gods whom they had not known, whom he had not allotted to them. Is that uncomfortable? And just to comfort you, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children. There are some secret things. Let's go to uh, flip a little bit more to the right, to Deuteronomy 32. I'm going to read a passage that Brian read last week, and we'll do a quick exercise here. Deuteronomy 32.7, I know we've hit this passage before, but it's really, really important. This is the story of Scripture. This is the story of the nations. Remember the days of old, Deuteronomy 32.7. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. That's that word allotment, to divide, to allot, is directly tied to the concept of inheritance. What is rightfully yours by descent? When the nations, or when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Whose Bible says the sons of Israel? Most. The phrase here is Beneha Elohim, sons of God. Do you know why they put sons of Israel? Because it's a lot more comfortable than sons of God. Do you know why it's a problem that it can't be sons of Israel? Because Israel didn't exist yet. This is about Babel. Abraham comes generations after Babel. There was no Israel. There were no sons of Israel. This is the sons of God. And that phrase is in the Old Testament a few places, and it always, always means divine beings. They, they read back sons of Israel because Jesus has an argument with the Pharisees in the New Testament where he uses that, the, the same concept, and 
people misinterpret that he's talking about the Pharisees as the sons of God, but he's not. He's talking about himself as a preeminent son of God among other sons of God. Now, I'm not saying there are other Jesuses. That's not the point at all. But scripture is very, very clear that God has a whole set of divine beings, and among them, God is preeminent, and Jesus Christ is God. Nobody is like them. But there are others. How do I know that? Well, still in 32, look at Deuteronomy 32, 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all you gods. What's the story of what God's doing here? You have this, these people, they get off the ark, they migrate together, and they're a united people. And they're led by this guy, Nimrod, who's a, a heck of a guy, apparently. He's a gibor. He's mighty. Is, that's the word, a giburim. Those, that's a word that's often translated Nephilim and giants. It's not the same, but it's similar. A lot of people say that Nimrod was the great-grandfather of Gilgamesh, which is one of the oldest stories we have, and Gilgamesh was really somebody important as well. So you get this guy, Nimrod, he's leading these people, he gets to this valley, and he builds multiple civilizations, including the entire civilization of Babylon and Assyria. This guy is busy, and, he, and they, they build this tower, and they're building it to the, to the heavenly beings because they want to, to be great by associating themselves with them and tapping into their power. And Yahweh says, no, that's not the plan. He says, the as long as they're single-mindedly focused on how great they are and trying to make a name for themselves, they're going to keep doing this. So he comes down and he says, let's divide them. He divides them, and they're confused. And he allocates them, in Deuteronomy 32, to other gods. And then he draws one nation out for himself makes it out of scratch. He gets Shem's descendants, he lifts up Abram, and he says, this one's gonna be my nation. This is my inheritance, and I'm your inheritance. And you go, well, what about all the, what about all the others? <laughs> what about all those guys? What about these other gods? And the story of scripture is God, one by one, destroys the other nation's gods, now, the gods don't die, they get angry. And what happens is at the end, they all get together and say, we're done with this Yahweh guy, we don't like him. And that's called Armageddon. And if you go read it, that's precisely what's happening. It's in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they say, let us throw off this yoke? It's a supernatural war. But what God's doing that's confounding these rebellious gods is he's taking this one nation and he says to Abraham, through you, all the nations are gonna be blessed. Through you, I'm gonna draw all the peoples to myself. And I'm going to make a nation that becomes the preeminent nation and it's an open invitation to whoever wants it. And guess what, you rebellious gods? I'm gonna take your people. That's what he does. And this is why Jesus says, all the power in heaven and earth has been given unto me, go tell the nations. How do we know this? Am I just making this up? That, that's a good spot. 
But there's another one where this word confused and bewildered comes up again and again. And it is in Acts chapter 2. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided, divided, tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. It's the same word. They were confused, bewildered, but this time not because everything was divided, but because everything was united. Not because they couldn't understand each other, but because they could understand each other. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then it lists nations. And you know what these nations are? We don't have time to go into it now. It's the same nations that were listed prior to the Babel story that Babel got divided into. It's just the modern expression of them a couple thousand years later. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of the people, God, the mighty works of God. And we all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Well, you know what it means? It means Babel's done. It means Babel's come full circle, and God is now pu pulling the people back to himself. How do we know this? We can't go into it now, but we've studied Acts before as a church, and one of the interesting things is when you get into chapters 8, 9, and 10, you get the conversion of an Ethiopian, you get Paul, and then you get um, Cornelius. Those are each descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, representatively. Paul's a Semite, Cornelius is a Japhethite, and the Ethiopians were from Cush, which is the son of Ham. So what is God doing with Babel? He's saying, I've allocated you to other gods. They're real beings, but they're corrupt. They turn away, and he tells them, over and over through scripture, I'm destroying you gods and I'm building a nation for myself and all the nations are gonna come to me. And he does that through Christ. Let's have the worship team come on up. There's, there's a passage, let's go to Revelation. I told you we we're gonna go to the end here. Let's go to Revelation chapter seven. I want to show you something awesome here. If you read Revelation, by the way, if you haven't read Revelation, sit down and read it. It's not that long. It's amazing. And read it and ask yourself about the nations because the whole thing's about the nations. 
But if you go to Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Has, the, has their tone changed a little since Babel? Yeah, now they're not looking to the other gods. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. We often think that we are the story of humanity, that we are the story of mankind, that it's us. And while it's true that we are kind of at the center of the story, we're really the pawn and the prize, but we're not who it's about. The story of humanity is about God. It's about the preeminence of God. It's about God being unique among any other God. That even is that, that he creates. Does that sound weird? It actually says Jesus created everything in heaven and on earth. If you go read First uh, and Second Peter, it says the heavens rebel and melt in the final days, and it says the heavenly hosts melt. I don't know what that's going to look like. Um, I don't think we can conceive of it. But Peter is very clear that this is a uh, this is a divine war that's going on. And it's been going on. It's been going on since before we were created. You believe that? Let's go to Second Peter. I know your fingers are going to get tired there. I'll wrap it up quick. Um, go to Second Peter. Second Peter three, verse five. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That means, and by that means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. We could go spend all day in this, but Peter's saying, you're forgetting what really happened here. There's a whole divine conflict going, and it's going to come to a head at the end, and it's been going on before, which is strange because that's not what the church often teaches, but it's what Jesus and his disciples would have understood because it's what was taught until, you know, a couple thousand or a thousand years after Christ. So there's a story of humanity, and the story of humanity is not about people. It's about God, and it's about his preeminence, and he's using us to show that, and here's what that means. It means not one of you got here today by yourself. Not one of you is here in and of yourself. Not one of you is here on your own. You're here 
because he drew you out and he called you. And there's a really important point to it. Every one of you is here as a testimony to the power of Almighty God and, the, and his power. And you are a walking, living testimony of his power to overcome the influence and corruption of rebellious gods that then turn us into rebellious little demigods running around thinking we're God. It's pretty much it, isn't it? Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you're going, well, I, I'm here because I walked here because I was curious, and yeah, I drove my car, and I'm wondering how I got here, and now I'm wondering how, when I can leave. Um, <laughs> if, if it's not computing when I say you're here because God drew you, then let's take this first song, we worship, and then I'm going to come back and lead us in communion and, and show you one, uh, a, a really interesting cherry on the top of this story. Ask God if he's drawing you. If God's God, if it's this God, if he's real, if he comes down to see, and if he's doing this and he's interested in what we're doing, then he's here. That's what the Bible says. And you can talk to him. And he listens. And he responds in your spirit if you'll listen to him. And that's why we worship. We don't worship just because singing together is a fun cultural colloquial thing that we do. We worship because we're collectively acknowledging God and what he's done. The same God. This God saving us out of the nations. Hardly any of us in here are Semites. A lot of us are Japhethites, some Hamites. And he's, so we're here as a testimony that Babel's over. The division's over. And any division that we feel between us is just a false remnant and a lie because he's united us in Christ. Let's worship together and I'll come back and close us. Okay, I'll take a few minutes because we've brought this full circle, but we haven't really brought the power of this home yet. So I want to show you something. This, that passage we read in Revelation chapter 7. Who, remember those people from every tribe and tongue and nation? And they were identified as the ones coming out of the great tribulation, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's a word that means to wash, to make white, and to refine. And it's a strange word, and the, the, the Revelation's in Greek, but it's a word that it tr translates from the uh, Hebrew of the Old Testament. And that word is laban, to wash and to make white. And there's two places in Scripture where it doesn't mean Laban, it means something else. It means to make bricks and burn them. Isn't that strange? The people come to Babel, and it, when it says, come, let us make bricks and burn them, they're using a, it's, the story is being told in a way that's, using the same word that also means to wash and to make white and to purify. And the only other place that word is used to make bricks is when the people are in slavery in Exodus chapter 5, which has a ton of references to this, and it says the people, the, the Jews in Exodus were dispersed through the land of Egypt, same word as Babel, to go gather straw to come back and make bricks. And that the slave masters beat them and said, where are the bricks? Why aren't you making bricks today like you made them yesterday? 
And then we get that same concept lifted out and said, or you can be washed and purified. How do we know it? Well, Paul brings it full circle for us. He brings it full circle for us in a passage we go to all the time, Romans chapter 8. Go to Romans 8. Right around um, 14. I'll read it for you if you don't want to turn there. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are now children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So you have a choice. What he's saying is, you haven't been called back to slavery. You've been called to a new inheritance. What was the old inheritance? What were we previously allocated? Other gods. And what did those gods do? They enslaved us. They enslaved us, and in the case of Israel, literally beat them into making bricks and building cities. That's what Israel did in slavery. They built cities and made bricks. Just like we had thought we wanted to do at Babel, let's go build a city, let's make bricks. Let's build a city, let's make a name for ourselves. We want to have a great name, like the great men of the earth. There's one place in Scripture where God says, do you want a great name like the great men of the earth? I'll give it to you. You know who he says it to? Is he says it to David in the Davidic covenant. He says, I will give you a great name like the great men of the earth, like Nimrod. I'll give you a great name like the great men of the earth, but I'm going to do it through your descendant. Everything we wanted at Babel that we were going to take for ourselves, God has provided to us through Christ. And we have a choice, and we can walk on one side of it or on the other side of it. Here's the elements we're talking about. In Babel, you have confusion, and in Christ, you have clarity. In Babel, you have dispersion and division. In Christ, we have unity. In Babel, you make bricks and burn them and build cities and slaves. In Christ, you're washed and cleansed white by his blood. In Babel, you have slavery. In Christ, we have an inheritance. An inheritance, remember? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption of sons. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that if we are children, then we are heirs. We have an inheritance. In Babel, we have a name that we try to make for ourselves. And in Christ, we have his name, the name above every name. That's the story of Scripture. That's what he's doing. It's not just you trying to be a better person. That's not what Scripture's about. It's not just that the world's a tough place and if you want to have your best life now, then you know, here's some good principles to apply. That may be partly true. Living according to Christ is a good way to live. But here in Romans 8, it says, 
you got to suffer with them. And he goes, oh, let's not do the suffering part. I don't like the suffering part. Let's go straight to the glory part. And he says, uh-uh, you suffer with them so you can participate in his glory. So in, the, in Scripture, the truth of Scripture is not about us trying to manifest to become our best self. It's the opposite of that. It's that God is manifesting himself through us because he's showing what kind of God he is. And in doing so, he's systematically defeating and crushing all the rebellious gods. And that's why they hate you. They hate you. The other gods hate you. And they actively work to destroy you and lie to you and oppress you and break you down and divide you and do anything they can to make sure this isn't what happens in your life. That's the battle we're fighting. You think it's the people around you who aren't treating you right or you think it's your own problems. Uh-uh, uh-uh. That's not our battle. Our battle's against powers and authorities and principalities and kingdoms. And they're capitalizing on the, the, the corruption that they've encouraged us into that started in Eden. And they want us to be a nobody. They want us to be dispersed. They, they want us to be theirs. And in fact, in, the, uh, in you know, Armageddon, they want us to be on their side. They want us to be rejecting and raging against God, the true king. But Jesus says that his kingdom is available to us if we choose it. He doesn't have slaves. You choose it. And you can be not just a servant in the kingdom, but an heir to the kingdom, a child of the kingdom. And he paid for it. Everything that we have in Christ is everything we thought we could do for ourselves in Babel. And God said, I'm going to show you a better way that actually works and that's true. And I'm going to release you from the oppression of those gods who hate you. That's a pretty cool story, isn't it? I don't know why we, we leave so much of it out. We shrink it down and we think that, that the Bible is just, if you ask Jesus, he'll come live in your heart and help you do a little better. That's not completely false, but that's just a fraction of what's really going on here, isn't it? So I'm going to call us now to communion. Communion is when we remember Christ and who he is. We think of Jesus as, you know, friendly, hippie Jesus. But that's not Jesus of Scripture. If we kept going on in Revelation, Jesus rides into battle and crushes millions and millions of hordes of demons. And the blood flows as high as the bridles of the horses for miles and miles and miles because he wipes them out because they're in absolute rebellion against him. That's Jesus. That's the Jesus we serve. And that's why when we, when we uh, you know, the song we just sang says, we're rejecting those other idols. We're casting out those things. We're saying no to that. We're saying yes to Christ, not because we're that good, but because he's the only one we should really be serving. He's the one we should be serving. And the same warning that applied to the, to the Jews in Deuteronomy applies to us. Be careful what you start to look at. If you start fixing your eyes on other things besides Christ, you'll start to worship them. You'll start to worship them. You think, oh, those other gods, I would never serve another god. Yes, you would. Yes, you would. 
they're just really sneaky because they don't care if you know their name. They just care that you don't know Jesus because that's the one they hate most of all. So choose Christ. Choose his name. Accept what he will give you based on who he is. Reject what you are tempted to try and turn yourself into based on who you are. And it's not because that's not true. God says these people, if they really turn into themselves, they're going to get to where they're going, but they'll be lost to me and I'll have to destroy them because they'll be in rebellion to me, along with these other gods that are in rebellion. He says that they'll do it. We can do that. But it's a mistake because we would be rejecting the one true preeminent God. And he spends the rest of Scripture showing who he is and saying, that's where you need to be. This is the kingdom I'm offering you. Come and take it. Come and take it. I bought it for you. It's yours. And I know those other gods are oppressing you, and I know those other gods hate you. Don't worry. I'm going to destroy them. And then, as we've studied in other sermons, then I'm going to lift you up and show you who you really are. All of us, none of us got here on accident. We've all been drawn here, and he's not done with you. He's not done with you today. He's not done with humanity. And the stakes are very high. So let's have communion together, and let's continue to worship. And remember who Christ is, who you worship. Remember what he's done. Remember who you are to him. And remember what we must turn away from.